You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about autism with Dr. Kate Wallace, a fellow in the Division of Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics, also at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me to talk about this. Great. So let's jump right in. In the Child Care Network, we do screenings for autism spectrum disorders with the MCHAT at 18 and 24 to 30 months, but we do surveillance at all ages. So what are some signs? of an autism spectrum disorder that we may observe in children who are less than 18 months old? Because I know we're looking for it, but what is it? Yeah, so it's a really good question. Uh, there's a lot of studies out there that are trying to figure out when children who ultimately are diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder tend to appear different from their same age peers. Mm -hmm. And some early sibling studies show that there are some subtle signs that you can see as early as around 12 months, Mm -hmm. but a lot of studies recently have been showing that there aren't huge differences until around 18 months of age. Um, Generally, we think of young children up until 18 months and toddlers beyond that as being just so eager for attention, vying for parents' attention, vying for adult attention. So children who really don't have that, who may have decreased engagement with others, decreased behaviors that we call seeking and sharing. So so if you walk into the room of of a young child and give them a book, instantly they should want to go over and walk over and show that to their parents. Right. So, so if they're not demonstrating those things, those could be some red flags that there are differences there. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to point out there's a misperception that children who do things like toe walk or flap their hands uh, may have autism. And while some children who have those behaviors do have autism, those behaviors can be quite Uh, typical Mm -hmm. uh, up until almost the toddler years. So Mm -hmm. those alone wouldn't make me super concerned at a young age, but it's the persistence of them over time that may make me more worried. Mm -hmm. And on that note, I've heard some providers and parents say things like, oh, they can't have autism because they're pointing, um, or maybe they're making good eye contact, or they're not hand flapping. So is it enough to say that my 18-month-old points and makes good eye contact so they can't have autism? Again, great question. So we even get uh, referrals about this all the time, either that a child does have one particular behavior or Alternatively, and this is almost more difficult for families, when they're told, oh, your child can have autism because they are affectionate or Mm -hmm. they do point. And really what we're looking at when we evaluate children is the quality of some of these behaviors. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the presence or absence of eye contact or pointing, uh, but really that the children are using it to engage with others. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes children may be pointing, but if they're not referencing back to their parents to make sure they're looking at the same thing and sharing engagement in that thing, that could be concerning. So it's Mm -hmm. really a matter of quality, not just the presence or absence of any of these signs. That's a great point. I mentioned that we do the MCHAT, so how good is the MCHAT as a screening tool? Yeah, so the 
American Academy of Pediatrics, as you had mentioned, recommends surveillance across ages, which mm -hmm. includes observation of children's behavior, making sure to ask parents uh, if they have any concerns and then talking about what those concerns consist of. And then uh, routinely at 18 and 24 months, uh, pediatricians are asked to use a more standardized screening tool and that tends to be the MCHAT. Mm -hmm. um, you can also use the MCHAT as early as 16 months and as late as 30 months of age mm -hmm. for any time that you may have a concern that's raised either by the parents or something that you're observing in the room that doesn't seem quite right. Right. Um, and so it's that, publicly available, right? So and you it's can publicly print it available, yep. If it's not showing up in, in Epic or for people outside of our system, you can print it from online. Absolutely. Um, the website, I believe, is mchat.org and it has both the the copies of the screening tool as well as follow-up questions. So what I was going to say is when we talk about how how good is the MCHAT, um, we do know that it's better when used with the standardized follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. So if a child fails one, zero to two items, we consider that a pass and mm -hmm. that's okay. If they fail eight or more, then that should trigger an automatic referral mm -hmm. and that should be for um, audiology, early intervention, and for further evaluation. And that form of further evaluation can take a couple of different, can be done in a couple of different places, such mm -hmm. as in our division in developmental behavioral pediatrics, or with psychiatry, psychology, mm -hmm. neurology, um, or even if the concerns are more speech-related with a speech therapist or mm -hmm. other sort of uh, therapist. Um, for those children who are in that moderate risk range where they fail three to seven items on the MCHAT, that's when these follow-up questions are mm -hmm. supposed to be in instituted. Um, so when used with the follow-up questions, the sensitivity of the test is about 94% and the specificity is about 83%. Mm -hmm. um, and the positive predictive value for autism spectrum disorder isn't great. It's at 48%, mm -hmm. uh, it's been estimated, but 95% to detect any sort of developmental concerns. Okay. So sometimes when I think about the MCHAT, of course we're using it to screen for autism, mm -hmm. but it also can give us some really good clues about how a child's overall development is occurring. Mm -hmm. And so children who fail and fail those follow-up questions um, merit some sort of referral and further evaluation because a mm -hmm. lot of them do end up going on to either be diagnosed with autism or some broader developmental um, delay or, or disability. Right. I think that's a great point that this, to remember that this is a screening tool and it's not a diagnosis. So you may pick up some kids who you might think have autism, but they could have something else. And that's why we are, why we're referring to specialists. Absolutely. That's a really good point. So are there cultural differences that we should be aware of using the MCHAT? So it's, it's a hotly debated topic right yeah. now. Um, the MCHAT is translated into many different languages and it's also been uh, culturally adapted into for, for many different countries. So here in the U.S. because we have such a multicultural society it, it begs the question of whether some of those more national cultural adaptations that are done elsewhere would be uh, better used here. Mm -hmm. um, there's still a lot of work going on looking at the use of the MCHAT and trying to validate in different subpopulations, um, but 
right now we do recommend screening with the MCHAT sort of across the board. But again, it's using your clinical judgment. So if you think either a family's not understanding a question mm -hmm. or they're saying that a child's not doing something as you observe it in the room, mm -hmm. that's a great opportunity to have a conversation with the family. And then always, if you're concerned but the screening is negative, you can always refer or vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, although. Although, as I said, even if you're not concerned about autism, mm -hmm. the MCHAT may indicate other developmental concerns that warrant further evaluation. Mm -hmm. Great. And on that topic, since communication is such a big part of an autism diagnosis, sometimes we have kids who are uh, late talkers and we blame this on them being dual language learners. So is there any science that supports that? Are kids learning two languages late talkers or are we missing some kids who might actually have a language delay and blaming it on, on their dual language learning. Yeah, so I think actually the latter, um, when they have looked at studies, there may be a slight delay in sort of the emergence of first words, mm -hmm. um, but still within the realm of normal. So a child who is showing delays, whether they're learning one or two languages, they mm -hmm. will still continue to show those delays. Mm -hmm. um, when we take this into account and try to assess a child's developmental level, we take into account both languages. So right. we sort of sum the number of words a, a child is saying, and we do expect that the, that total number of words should be the same as a child who's only learning one language. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, what I do want to say is that often um, in our, on a related topic, I get the question of, so if a child is learning one language or two languages, um, or two languages are spoken at home, should a child with a language delay only be spoken to in one language? Mm -hmm. And I think what we do know about language development is that it's the richness of the language that the child is hearing in their everyday environment. Mm -hmm. And so I always encourage, there are very few cases where I don't encourage families to speak to their children in whichever language they are most comfortable mm -hmm. because that's how the child will hear the most rich forms of language mm -hmm. and then be able to learn those words over time. Right, great, good point. Uh, one other point is developmental regression is never normal. Mm -hmm. And so whenever you have a child who truly is losing milestones, always merits further evaluation. Mm -hmm. um, and often we would recommend seeing a neurologist or a medical specialist to, to, to further evaluate what is going on with the developmental regression and what's producing that. And mm -hmm. things like metabolic conditions um, go on to our differential when we hear, or other genetic conditions when we hear about true developmental regression. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a good point to keep in mind. When we're making an autism diagnosis or a patient maybe newly has an autism diagnosis coming to us in primary care, is there any other medical workup that we should do, such as genetic testing? Yeah, so it's always really important to go back to what you're really great at in general peds, which is physical exam mm -hmm. and really engaging the families in questioning, making sure you're understanding all of their concerns and having those conversations, um, making sure a physical exam includes a neurologic exam, including mm -hmm. looking for any form of dysmorphic features mm -hmm. such as um, such as unusual ear shape, unusual spacing of the eyes, which ju mm -hmm. just could give clues that there could be some other genetic condition uh, going on. It's also really important to monitor a child's growth chart and look for mm -hmm. head growth. Um, and there, there 
is some concern that children with an autism spectrum disorder tend to have larger heads, mm -hmm. but if their heads are truly above the 95th percentile for age, that really does often warrant a further workup, mm -hmm. likely including an MRI. In terms of genetic testing, even when you don't have a concern based on a dysmorphic feature, um, the presence and diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder alone um, warrants testing with a microarray and fragile X testing. Mm -hmm. um, this is considered standard of care and part of uh, standard of care. So insurance generally, uh, you may have to get a prior authorization, mm -hmm. but uh, but insurance companies generally do um, do cover the, those tests, mm -hmm. microarray and fragile X. I always encourage families if you're ordering those to just call their insurance, make sure that's the case mm -hmm. um, so that they don't get stuck with a very large bill for genetic testing afterward, but mm -hmm. uh, generally I've had much success getting, getting coverage for those because it, it is standard. Mm -hmm. Let's shift a little bit towards management. So one of the comorbidities that we struggle with most in, in our primary care autism uh, spectrum disorder patients is food selectivity. So any tips that we can offer families who are dealing with very restricted diets to avoid any micronutrient deficiencies and promote their growth? Yeah, this is something that we all struggle mm -hmm. with, and some kids with autism can be so, so selective, um, and they can further restrict over time, and um, even if they seem to have normal nutritional status previously, it's really important to keep monitoring for mm -hmm. that. Um, we see in children with autism on occasion things like scurvy, which we don't tend mm. to think about, but because yeah. they are so restricted in, in what they're accepting. So just like you do in sort of picky toddlers, we really encourage families to focus on one to two foods at a time mm -hmm. and just continuously reintroducing. Um, it's also about the social experience of eating. Mm -hmm. And so children with autism, even though they have some differences in their social interests are not immune to seeing family members eating the food and then wanting to participate. Mm -hmm. So uh, often we'll talk about a family um, who's trying to get their child to eat more vegetables and then if you ask the parent they also don't <laughs> eat vegetables and right. that's a really hard place. So just like you do in other children in primary care, make sure that the families are eating um, and engaging in that social experience mm -hmm. and whereas in in general pediatrics for children without an autism spectrum disorder, we talk about multiple exposures. It may just be even more exposures mm -hmm. to try to get a child to eat. Some children are so challenging that you may need to work with them in um, and in, in, with a behavioral therapist. Mm -hmm. So if they're getting behavioral supports in the community, such as applied behavioral analysis mm -hmm. or other sorts of behavioral supports, um, that could become a goal uh, mm -hmm. that, that the therapist can work on that with them on expanding their palate. And really, it's just continuously trying to work at this, monitoring, and if they're really still that restricted, um, they may need to go to a specialized feeding program like mm -hmm. the one we have here at CHOP, which mm -hmm. works on behavioral management of selective eating. Great. In children who are older at the age of diagnosis, sometimes there can be some overlap with ADHD or other learning disabilities. So how do we tease these out to determine if we're dealing with one diagnosis or multiple? Yeah, this is a really great point. So. Um, 
previously in DSM-4, mm -hmm. uh, you couldn't have a dual diagnosis of, of autism as well as ADHD. Uh, with DSM-5, you're now able to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's helping us to recognize the degree to which some of our patients suffer from both symptoms of both disorders. Mm -hmm. um, often we will it's a matter of degree, so there are some children with autism who are a little bit more hyperactive, but it's not becoming such an impairing feature for them. Right. Um, but at the point that it's really prohibiting them from engaging in academics or therapies or really putting them at harm, that's when we start thinking about uh, adding the diagnosis of ADHD and addressing mm -hmm. that specifically. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really observing the extent of the behaviors as well as evaluating how impairing they become mm -hmm. and then thinking about both conditions. Do you see kids though that have ADHD or learning disability who look similar to uh, autism picture but don't actually meet the criteria, like there's overlapping symptoms that sometimes are confused? Yeah, so some kids who have really significant ADHD can actually have difficulties with social interaction because mm -hmm. their inattention and hyperactivity just get in the way of their of their friendships. Mm -hmm. um, but often they don't meet some of the broader categories of things that we think about, the repetitive and restricted behaviors that go along with it. Right. Um, or they may meet some, but not all. And, and it's a different flavor. It's a different mm -hmm. quality. Mm -hmm. um, some children with learning disabilities, especially uh, a nonverbal learning disability, mm -hmm. actually can have some features that, that can overlap with autism, mm -hmm. such as differences in their use of eye contact. Um, so if you're really getting down these are pretty... Mm -hmm. uh, this is why we have you. <laughs> yes, this is very fine differences. And it's something that in our division that we struggle with as well and really mm -hmm. have to think through what, how complex are, are, is the presentation, mm -hmm. what else could be going on. And so whenever we're doing making a diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder, we're evaluating for some of these other sorts of, of features to make sure that we're not over-diagnosing but really taking it into account. Anxiety disorders can mm -hmm. also have some overlap, so we always ensure and try to try to tease that out just mm -hmm. a little bit. So if you're if you're coming to this point, you're thinking the right mm -hmm. things, but it may be time to to bump it up to someone who's really trained just to do this. Yeah, then we can call for help for Absolutely. sure. <laughs> so parenting a child with an autism spectrum disorder can be challenging. So how can we as pediatricians help support parents and siblings? Yeah, so uh, it can be really challenging and we know that there's a very high rate of caregiver depression. Mm -hmm. um, we often really just try to start our conversations when we're making a diagnosis or when we're following children to ensure to assure families that there is no guilt associated mm -hmm. with it. There's nothing that they did that produced this, mm -hmm. this condition in their children. Um, and the number of of mothers particular who sort of break down when they hear that because they've been carrying around this guilt mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, it's really important just to reassure them that this is not anything uh, uh, that, that they did. It wasn't a result of their parenting, mm -hmm. for example. The autism community is really, really strong. And mm -hmm. so families often initially feel isolated, but there are really strong parent networks and social groups. Um, that families can can engage with mm -hmm. for support. I think one of the things they often struggle with is how to tell other, when do I tell family members? When do right. I tell grandparents? Right. How do I explain this to, to 
grandparents. So there are groups out there that will engage other family members mm -hmm. to try to understand um, because that can be a real challenge. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to engaging with children, uh, we encourage families to try to engage around a particular interest. So if a child is really fixated on cars or trains, mm -hmm. you can make an experience out of riding the train one day and the whole right. family can get excited about that. Mm -hmm. um, if you have other children who aren't that excited about just the train mm -hmm. riding part of it, but using the train to go to something that the whole family wants to participate right. in and really incorporating the, the whole family into that. Mm -hmm. um, and it is important for families to take time to recognize that they can just be families, just mm -hmm. kids can just be kids, parents can just be parents. Mm -hmm. A lot of families, because they're trying to do the best for their kids, can get even almost burned out because they're trying to find a learning opportunity in every single mm -hmm. social interaction with their right. children. So we often, as clinicians, just try to give them permission to take their, their therapist hat off and mm -hmm. just be a parent and really enjoy right. that interaction with their families. Okay. Um, and the last thing that I think is really important and something that primary care pediatricians can really do and that you do well because you, you see so many different conditions, you're talking with families about so many different things, is to some degree demystifying autism. Mm -hmm. So it has a really scary reputation, but it's it's not unique in that way. Um, mm. You're used to having these conversations that are really tough, and autism is really not a particularly exceptional. It's a, I'm not minimizing what it means to families, mm -hmm. but just saying, you know, this is something else that, that your child is suffering from. We're going to support you through it and um, just trying to demystify it because there's so much fear out there. But in the end, kids with autism are still kids. Mm -hmm. um, they still suffer from the same sort of pediatric conditions that you're used to dealing with, and mm -hmm. it's just remembering that autism is just one feature of, uh, what, of what they're going through. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, on that point, I think it's really important for us in primary care when we see a child who we think may have autism to not be afraid to to say it and to start those conversations with families and it really breaks my heart sometimes when I see a family where it's kind of been hinted at but talked around and they present to developmental peds later and they get therapy later because people were afraid to tell them about the fact that they think there might be autism um, in their future and so I think it's really important that we have those open discussions as soon as we feel that we um, see that diagnosis. Absolutely. Uh, it's really hard when they get to our office mm -hmm. and they've gone through early intervention and therapies. Sometimes they're even told by some early intervention therapists, oh, this definitely can't be autism. Right. And then when we do a full evaluation, it really becomes apparent that it is. Mm -hmm. That's a particularly hard place for fam families to hear this word for the first time mm -hmm. or to hear that this could be what's going on. Right. So it's really just starting that conversation. Um, the, the best time to make a diagnosis is when families have had a little bit of time to adjust to the possibility to mm -hmm. learn about it. And often there can be even a sense of, oh, of um, comfort in having an answer mm -hmm. and right. recognizing what's going on and then having steps for action to move forward. Right. So yeah, I absolutely agree that if you really think that's what's going on, just starting to use the word. And mm -hmm. then as you're making these other referrals, the families won't be hearing it for the first time much right. later or 
um, if at all, or much later because right. they have delays in, in seeking care or, or getting help. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you so much. This was very informative, and I know you're getting lots of referrals from us all the time, but expect some more because we appreciate your help and the care that you and your division give to our patients. We're happy for the collaboration, so thank you for having me and giving me this opportunity to talk to you today. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash pcppodcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.